morning, friends. Hey, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 on your phones, on, in your Bibles, it'll be on the screen as well. I do want to just pause as we kick off our service to pray for our pastor. Uh, pastor Aaron wanted so badly to be back with you this morning. I know he's watching, uh, but we want to just pray for him. Uh, he, you know, it, it's been hard for him to miss this many weeks in a row being with you and, and preaching. So let's just pause before you dive in and let's pray for him. God, thank you for Pastor Aaron. Thank you for his love for you that compels him to love us and lead us so well. God, we miss him. God, we want to see him healed, and we take heart in the fact that you are the healer, you are the great physician, so we're asking you to heal him so that he can return to lead us, God, from, from the pulpit in no time. God, just walk with him in this season. In your name we pray, amen. All right, I'm going to jump right in. We're, we're going to start reading, and then we'll, we'll talk about it as we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the pagans or the Gentiles. Man, what a way to start, huh? It's a pretty, pretty heavy start. It says this, that someone has his father's wife. All right, I'm just going to put it out there. What that is referring to is a young man is sleeping with his stepmother. So that's where we're started. So you can imagine yesterday, Pastor Aaron texts me and he says, hey, I can't go tomorrow. Do you want to preach? And I was excited. I, I love, I, I love to, to preach. I love to teach. And I was like, yes, I will. And then I opened up and read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the first verse. And I was like, oh, man. So I went and talked to my wife. She gave me a couple things. She said, first of all, there's no crying in sermon prep, so get off the ground. So I, I got up, dusted myself off, and I said, but I think I'm sick. And she said, no, you're not. When you're a balding, almost 40-year-old, you can't fake being sick anymore. So here I am. But let me just tell you this. It is a, as you already see, this is a heavy, heavy passage of Scripture that we're going to be dealing with this morning. Uh, it's intense. It, it, it's and at times hard to wrestle through some of it, but it's important. But I will also say this just real quick uh, about this. It, as you see in the first verse, it is also a very mature, at times adult-themed passage of Scripture. My 10-year-old and 12-year-old sat through it, and I had no problem with them sitting through it. And, and your kids will be fine. Uh, however, if you're a little bit uncomfortable, we do have a phenomenal children's ministry. Today might be the best day to check it out. Uh, so just saying that, this is a no-judgment zone. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to dive right into this and, and kind of explore this together. But you know, the, the truth is, the more I dug into 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the more I initially was like, man, this is going to be hard to wrestle through, the more I realized how much we need this as a church. And I don't just mean right here, but I mean our, the church at large. How tough love is so pivotal. How hard conversations are so important. Here's the thing, we all know that. I, I think, for me, I, I think back to a tough love conversation as a dad that I had. Many of you know our story in 2019. Our middle daughter, Addie, as a seven-year-old, was diagnosed with leukemia. Hard, hard day, difficult day, a day that no parent ever, ever wants to walk into. And we watched as her hair fell out. We watched as the drugs just destroyed her little body. And I remember one time in particular, she was just just struggling so much. I mean, she's, she's got nausea and she's, her energy is depleted. She can't go to school. And she has to take pills every single day. 
for, for two and a half year time frame, chemo pills, and then they would throw in steroids, and they would throw in other things to prevent infection. And it was just, it was a hard, hard place for her to be at. And so she came to us, and, and she said, Mom and Dad, I don't want to take my pills anymore. Do I have to keep taking my pills? And so we looked at her, and we said, Addie, you're old enough to make your own decision. And you know what? That is your responsibility that's your choice, and so you can do whatever you want to in this situation. None of you believe that's what I did, right? Because no parent in their right mind would ever dream of doing that. We lovingly looked at her and we said, sweetheart, we are so sorry. Like, what's your favorite drink? How can we help get that drink to help this go down? We, man, we can't imagine what you're going through. We hugged her. We loved on her. We got her whatever her favorite drink was. And for two and a half years, we made sure she took her pills every single day. And we told her, but here's the, here's, here's the toughest part of the love. We said, Addie, these pills are what God is going to use to save your life. This medicine is what is going to keep you healthy. And you need this medicine. And so we had that tough love. And God did bring her through it. But here's, the, here's what I know. Tough love prevents us from experiencing tougher consequences. Tough love keeps us from the path and the road of destruction. Difficult conversations keep us from being destroyed. You know that. I know that. Think about it this way. How many of us, a coach, a parent, a teacher... A grandparent, an aunt, an uncle had a hard conversation with us. And because of that hard conversation, it kept us from marrying the wrong person. It kept us from choosing the wrong career path. It kept us from going to the wrong school. It kept us from studying the wrong thing because someone loved us enough to have that tough conversation. On the flip side, how many of us, we have regret in our life today. We have things that we wish were different and it's because either A, we ignored that tough love, or no one loved us enough to have that hard conversation. And so we ended up in this deep pit, in this, this deep spiral, this place that we wish that we were not in. Because tough love prevents tougher consequences. We know that to be true. But here's what I also know to be true. In a, in a room this size, a, a couple hundred people, there's three or four or five of us that are like, yes, finally a sermon about confronting others. I've been waiting for this moment. All right, those of you, if you do the Enneagram, you're the eights. You love the hard conversation. But for the rest of you, you're like, oh, do we have to? Because we dread having those hard conversations. And even if you like to have them, you hate being on the receiving end of them. You just do. But here's the thing. Our loving Heavenly Father knows all that, but he also knows what's best for us. He has designed us to be in a place where when we can lean into those conversations and when we can receive them with a posture of openness and a posture of humility, it will save us from death and destruction. And I want to just pause and say this. If, if you're not a Jesus follower, if you're kicking the tires, if you're searching a little bit, I would invite you, this, this, this passage we're reading is written by the Apostle Paul to Christians about how they should deal with other Christians. So as you lean in, as you listen in, think about this as a daddy who loves his kids and is willing to do whatever it takes 
to protect them, to care for them, to lean into the hard conversations. Think about it from that perspective. And I invite you just to listen in and see what you can learn and take away from that. A little bit of what's happening here, if you haven't been with us, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and the first couple months have been, the whole thing has been about divisions in the church, divisions in the church. Today, we're going to take a right-hand turn, and for the next couple weeks, we are going to talk about sexual issues within the church. And that, this shouldn't come as a surprise, because the Corinthian culture was very sexually corrupt for, for a couple reasons. One was it was a upwardly mobile culture, and so many young adults were moving there, and they were living promiscuous lifestyles. Another reason was that the Corinthian culture, it was a collision of the, the Greeks and the Romans coming together, and as they were colliding, they were bringing many different temples and shrines and rituals, and a big part of the rituals of both of these religions was temple prostitution. So it was a sexually charged culture. That it's going on here. But as you're going to see, that e even for the culture, what happens here is, is mind-blowing. So, first of all, we see that Paul is, is giving and receiving this shocking report. Right? Verse 1 tells us that, that even in the perverse culture that they were in, the pagan neighbors were actually shocked by what was going on. Well, what was going on? A young man is sleeping with his father's wife. That word sleep, it's present tense. It's continual. It's currently happening. There's immorality. In that culture, you need to know this a little bit, that the, the life expectancy was much lower than today. And oftentimes, women would die after having multiple kids or even one kid, they would die in childbirth. And oftentimes, husbands would take a second wife after their wife had passed away, and she would be quite a bit younger. Sometimes similar in age to some of his oldest children. And we don't know if that's the case here or not, but in any case, we do know that what's happening is sickening. It's gross, it's perverted, it's twisted, so much so that their pagan neighbors are looking at them and they're being like, that is sick, that is nasty. I cannot believe that you are doing that. And as, as gross and as challenging as that is, what we're about to see is that wasn't even the biggest problem that Paul was calling out. It wasn't even the fact of this gross immorality. It was something far greater that was even, even more damaging. So let, let's read verse 2 together. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. In other words, he is saying the correct response here would be to mourn. That word mourn is the same word they use in that culture for funerals. And it was a long, drawn-out process. The correct response would be brokenness. The correct response would be heartbreak. The correct response would be sorrow. Sorrow and brokenness and hurt that leads you to do hard things, to have hard conversations, to go after the lost one, to go after the broken one. And instead... You have a posture of arrogance. And we talked about that the last few weeks. You have a posture of pride. You have a posture that says, I'm not going to deal with this. This is not my problem to deal with. And that was the issue that was at hand here, is that there was open, unrepentant sin that was not being dealt with. It was being ignored. It was being swept under the rug. And we're not told specifically why. The truth is, it, it could have been that they just said, you know what? That's your truth. You live your truth. I'll live my truth. They could have said, that's your problem, not my problem. If it was modern day, maybe they would say, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know, I, I don't know. 
But for whatever reason, they ignored it. But at its heart, I know why they ignored it. It's the same reason you and I don't have hard conversations. Because they didn't want to get messy. They didn't want to pay the price for what it was going to cost them. What if this damages my relationship with my brother or sister in Christ? What if my reputation is hurt through this process? What if, and they had all the what ifs in mind, and so they did not want to lean into it, and they didn't want to deal with it. And Paul is saying that is pride, that is arrogance, and that's destructive, and that's really, it's unacceptable that they're doing that. And Paul is shocked by that report. And let me just say this up front, just to be clear. That the, the report that there is sin is not what's shocking to Paul. Paul refers to himself as the chief of all sinners. Paul wasn't surprised that there was sin in the church. And neither should we. He was surprised. He was heartbroken. He was devastated because they were tolerating it. And they weren't repenting. And they were almost just saying, you know what? We don't care about this. And that's at the core in, in all of this conversation today. And so he, he, it's a shocking report. But the second thing is there's a shocking response by Paul. Look at verse 3. For on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit. Okay, let me, let me just pause right there. This isn't an a overly spiritual statement. He wasn't saying like I'm, I'm with you like in this mystical way. It would be like if you said, hey, sorry I missed your birthday party, but I was there in spirit. That, that's the phrasing that, that's being used here. Okay, so... Though absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Paul is saying, if you truly love and care about someone, you're going to go after them. You're going to judge them. Because tough love prevents us from experiencing tougher consequences. Now, this is shocking for a number of reasons. One is it's shocking because it feels judgmental. Well, he actually used the word judging, so it doesn't just feel. It is judgmental. But here's, here, here's why it's shocking to us as a culture. All right? If you Google, the Bible says not to, here's some of the top things that are going to come up. Some of them you're like, that makes sense. Others you're like, man, that's, I'm not sure why that's at the top of the list. But look at, look at the top of the list right there. The Bible says not to judge. Inside the church, outside the church, we love to throw that phrase around, judge not that you be not judged. Don't judge. Don't judge me. Don't question me. I can do what I want. I got my thing. I'll do my thing. You do your thing. But here, and, and, and honestly, it can even feel like this is a contradictory statement. Like Jesus did say, don't judge or you yourself will be judged. And Paul is saying judge. How do we, how do we bring all that together? Context, my friends context. Context is always king. Context is always key. And if you read the whole phrase of what Jesus is saying, he's saying with fear, with trepidation, after extensive examination of your own life, after holding up a mirror to your life, then judge someone else. Then confront someone else in love, in brokenness, in humility. Go after that person. They're not at odds at all, but Jesus is saying to love someone is to confront them. To love someone is to challenge them. But only after you have first looked at your own life. I think we also squirm at this because we love to say, like, God loves me the way that I am. Or just come as I am, right? 
Like all those things. God loves me the way I am. And God does love you the way you are. Praise the Lord for that. But he loves you too much to allow you to stay in that place. And if you're a follower of Jesus, God, all of your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. But there's still growth for us to experience. There's still growth for us to, to have. I, I like to think about it like this. As parents, right? Imagine you've got this, this three-year-old son, right? It's always the sons that get into trouble at three, so this is easier to, to imagine that way. And he loves to run into the road. And so you, first you take him, you say, Johnny, don't do that. Johnny runs into the road again, almost gets hit by a car. Johnny, don't do that. Consequence. Johnny, don't do that. Johnny, finally, he keeps getting consequences. He looks up at mama with those puppy dog eyes, right? And he says, mama, don't you love me the way that I am? She's not going to say, you're right, I do, as you were. No mother's going to say that. She's going to say, I do love you, son, but I also care about you and I want to protect you. I want what's best for you. And that's the picture that we see here in this, this tough love, these tough conversations that Paul is challenging them to do. And he continues, though, with this shocking response. It, it gets even more shocking. So not only is this idea of judging, but then he unpacks what that looks like. Verse 4 and verse 5. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, that word means gathered, okay? That, that, that's really what the word for church is. It's a gathering. It's a called out assembly. It's a movement on a mission. When you are assembled, when you are gathered, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. Whoa, that feels harsh all of a sudden, doesn't it? For the destruction of his flesh, so that... His spirit may be saved in the day <clears throat> of the Lord Jesus. Wait a minute, Paul. Hand them over to Satan? Like, I, I get tough conversations. I get church discipline. I, I get punishing them, but handing them over to Satan? Man, that, that feels harsh. And to be clear here, again, this is important. This is talking about an unrepentant person. This isn't someone who messed up and is, is striving to go through it, right? Like we as a church, if we're honest, we have a tendency to shoot our wounded, to kick people while they're down, to, to heap it on broken people, all right? This isn't, this isn't what we're talking about. This, this isn't that idea of going after people while they're down. This is an, a person who is blatantly unrepentant, and they don't care about it. And so when he says hand him over to Satan, picture it like this. Think of the church, not the building, but the people as a hedge of protection or an umbrella of protection. And when you're inside the church, you're a part of the family of God, and the world is run, we're told that, that Satan is, is the king of this world, the prince of darkness. The world is run by Satan. And when, when you're in the world, it is a rough place to be. It is a difficult place to be. It is a painful place to be. But as a part of the family of God, we're sheltered from that. We're protected by the Holy Spirit. We're protected by God, our loving Heavenly Father. We're protected by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're protected by all of those things. And Paul is saying, for this brother to feel the weight of what he's doing, for the sake of his life, we've got to remove him from that protection. We've got to put him out into the world where he's on his own where his dad isn't protecting him anymore, where he can experience the weight of it. And hopefully, as we pray for him, as we do this with, with just 
trepidation and with just fear and with, with sadness, hopefully it will shock his system. Hopefully it will grab his attention and he will come running back to his loving Heavenly Father and his family of faith. That's the picture here. I, I think about it like this. When I was a young adult in my late teens and early 20s, I would often butt heads with my dad. Maybe you can relate as, as fathers. Maybe you can relate as sons. And I would challenge him and I would push back. And my dad had this simple thing he would say to me. He'd say, here's the deal, man. You can do this or you can go find your own place to live. But if you're in my house, these are my rules. We won't ask for show of hands if you've said that or heard that. And my dad would challenge me that. And here's what my dad knew. When I was in his house, things were good. I was paying him $100 a month in rent, and that included all my food, and my mom did my laundry till a week before I got married. Like, that's a pretty good setup, okay? Like, I, you're like, well, you're old. Even, when, even as an old, like, if you think I'm old, that's a good deal. If you think I'm young, that's a good deal. That's a great deal. And my dad knew that. But he also was willing to say, I'm willing to push you out from under my hedge of protection if I need to, to shock your system. Because I know what it'll do for you. And you better believe I never left his house. Because I was dumb, but not that dumb. Okay? And that's the picture. That's the idea that we see here. Another way of the imagery, if you, if you flip forward to verses 6 and 7 of 1 Corinthians 5, and we don't have time to go too deep into it today, but, but Paul mentions this idea of the Passover, and that idea of Passover is actually one of protection as well. You see, if you were to go back to Exodus chapter 12, in the Jewish culture, the Jewish people, they were enslaved by the nation of Egypt. And as they were coming to the end of their time in slavery, God sent a series of plagues. And the last plague was called the Passover lamb. And, it, and, and what happened was the children of Israel were told, listen, you need to go kill a lamb. And you need to put the blood of it on your doorpost. And tonight, while you are sleeping, there's going to be a death angel that's going to come. In any house, in all, of the, in all of the homes of Israel, all of the homes of Egypt, that does not have blood on the doorpost, when the death angel comes, if blood is not on the doorpost, the firstborn son is going to give his life. He's going to be punished. He's going to die. But if, his, if the blood of the lamb is on the doorpost, that is a hedge of protection for your house. Your firstborn will not die. And that's what happened. And the ruler of the land, Pharaoh, as well as every house in the land that did not have blood on the doorpost, lost their firstborn child. Why? Because they were not under the protection of the blood. And so that is what's happening by removing someone, handing them over to Satan. It's this idea of I'm doing this to shock their system. I'm doing it for their own good. But it is intense. And we realize that. And I can't say enough that this is a last resort. And this is, again, for people inside the church. Not outside people, broken people that come in looking for hope, looking for help, looking for life that are curious. It's a last resort. But if it does come to that, there's a step-by-step -step process of how to walk through. And Jesus and Paul both lay out kind of what that process looks like. So I invite you, save your place in 1 Corinthians 5, but quickly turn backwards in your Bible to Matthew 18. And we'll put it up on the screen for you as well. It says this. I'll give you a second to turn there. Matthew 18. If your brother sins, 
And by the way, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 11, you don't need to look there, but it lays out, it's not just the immorality of, of sleeping with your father's wife. It lays out a number of things that every single person in this room is guilty of. It says, yet if you indulge in sexual sin or greedy or worship or idols, abusive, drunkard, or cheats people, we're all guilty of one of those things. Have you ever put something ahead of God? Idolatry. Okay, right? Like we're, we're guilty of all those things. So it says this, if your brother sins, He's in this pattern of uh, this idea of, of unrepentance, obvious sin. Okay, let's be clear. That's what this is. This isn't like something that you interpret as sin. This isn't someone that does something that you're like, I think that's sin. I'm going after them. This is obvious, unrepentant sin. It says, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So the first thing is go alone. And go directly to that person. Don't go to someone else and say, hey, I've got to have a hard conversation with Bob. Will you pray for me? It's an unspoken conversation, but I got that hard conversation. No, go directly to Bob. You do that. And also go to them. If you're under 30, don't text them. If you're over 30, don't email them. Go to them. That's the idea. That's the picture here. But if he does not listen to you, man, he's just not responding. Take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So take a few people with you. Why do you do that? One is it, it turns up the heat a little bit. Again, we're trying to avoid having to remove them from the church. We're trying to avoid handing them over to Satan. But it also gives protection to what you're saying. No, like, listen, I'm seeing the same thing he is. This is something that really concerns me. This is a pattern in your life, and I'm really concerned about you. I love you too much to not say anything. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, so you've taken it to church leadership. You've taken it to the leaders of the church. Now he, he's feeling, she's feeling the full weight of the church challenging them. What does it say? They've refused to listen. Even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Hopefully the full weight of the church will, will wake them up. But if it doesn't, what do you do? You treat them a Gentile or a tax collector? That's code for the worst sinners of that day. In other words, you begin to treat them like people who don't know Jesus. Well, what does that mean? What, what does that look like? It, it doesn't mean that they cannot attend church, right? Because tax collectors and sinners, they were invited into the church. But what it does mean this is they are no longer get to experience the blessings and the benefits of being a part of a family. First Corinthians 5 verse 11 says you don't, you stop breaking bread with them. Why? Because breaking bread is an intimate thing. Breaking bread is a personal thing. And so you treat them, you begin to pray, God, please let their heart be broken. God, please bring them back to you. Please let them feel the weight of the separation from the family of God. Please wake them up. And by the way, God, please point out anything in me that is broken, anything in me that's dangerous. Why? Because tough love prevents us from experiencing tougher consequences. It does. We need it. We don't want it, but we need it. Paul kind of finishes with this, this thought with giving us some Serious reasons why. Why this matters. Why this is important. If, 
If your neighbor is, has, has been dozing off, this is the time to elbow them. If, if you've missed what we've said, like dial in right now because this is pivotal. This is so important. This is going to give you a reason, an explanation of why this actually matters, why we should exercise tough love. And, and, and Paul points out here a couple of really important reasons. The first one we see here is that it's concern for the sinning brother. Church, here, here's what I want us to understand. The end goal, the end goal is never removal, but it's always restoration. The end goal is, is never just simply punitive, but it's that they get to experience the promises of God. The end goal is never their destruction, but it's their deliverance. And that's what we get to do. That's what we get to be a part of when we're going after the lost one, the sinning brother. And this is our best shot at restoration. And you know, I, I was thinking about this. You know who doesn't struggle with this concept? Some of us in this room that have experienced extreme tough love where perhaps we've been removed from our family for a season, where we've been told we're not welcome there. I recently connected with an incredible organization that's in Clayton called House of Hope. Maybe some of you have heard of it and have been there. And this organization, what they do is, is it's, it's a faith-based organization and they take in eight to 10 young teenage ladies who are struggling with something that they cannot break free from. And what happens is their parents come to a place and they're like, we are beyond the place where we can help you. And as I was meeting with their leadership a few weeks ago, one of their leaders was telling me, it's, it's, it's a hard and painful process when a parent shows up at House of Hope. And when they hand their daughter over to basically a stranger and a group of strangers and say, I don't have anything else I can do. Can you help? And the daughters are often like, please, I'll, I'll change. I'll do anything. I don't want to do this. But the parents realize at this point, there's nothing more inside their house that they can do for their daughter. And so they hand them over to this organization that loves them, that cares for them, that helps restore the brokenness. And, and God's using that organization in a big way. But they understand that idea that, they, that tough love is what wakes you up and that sometimes... It involves you doing really, really hard things. So there's concern for the sinning brother, but there's also concern for the church. Check out verse six and verse seven. It says this, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? If you don't know what leaven is, think, think modern day, think this idea of yeast, okay? A little bit of yeast makes bread rise. And so it's that idea of, of a little bit impacts the, the greater good. So clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Think about it this way. In our culture, because I realize many of us don't bake bread anymore, but think about it this way. Most of us, if we're 30 or older, we have a dermatologist, and, right? You're like, man, bread, dermatologist? We go to our dermatologist. Why? Because if there are moles or if there are spots on our skin, we want someone that, that's an expert to look at them and to determine if it's a big deal or not. So I've got a scar on my chest. It wasn't even a cancerous mole. It was a precancerous mole. They took it out. They said, that's bad. They went back in and they scraped what's called the margins of it. Why? Because they knew not in weeks, not in months, not probably even in a few years would this be a big deal. But in eight years, 10 years, 15 years, it would eventually spread into my lymph nodes, spread into my blood, and it would take my life. And so it was a big deal. 
And so in, in that context, they took this serious. Why? So that it didn't become serious. And that is what Paul is saying. Take your anger serious before it becomes serious. Take your lusting serious before it becomes serious. Take your flirting with, with someone who's not your husband, not your wife, serious before it becomes serious. Take your, your habit serious before it becomes an addiction. Take all of these things, take them serious before it becomes serious. And do that individually, but oh, by the way, collectively, you need to do that as well. After you've examined your life, take the sin in your brother's life serious before it becomes serious for the whole. This is a big deal. And so there's this idea of concern for our brother. But not just that, but it's also concern for the world around us. Check out verse 9. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And by the way, he qualifies this. Some of us, we, we, it's easy just to stop right there and to go hardcore and be overly fundamental or to be Amish or to all move to a colony where we're cut off from the world. That's not what he's saying. I do not mean all the immoral people in the world or with the covetousness, swindlers, or idolaters, for then you would have to leave this world. In other words, it's not gonna work anyways. What is he talking about? For what I do with judge, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? In other words, stop looking outside and start looking inside. But those who are outside, God judges, leave it to him, but remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Why? Because the world is watching. Take this serious because the world is taking note. We, we may not realize this, but there are more people in our communities today who will never set foot in a church again than there are those who are attending church. And the same thing is true for people with their Bible. So guess what the only version of a Bible many people are getting to read? That's it. The only form of Jesus, broken as it is, that many people are going to see? That's it. And so Paul is saying this is a big deal. People are watching one, one of the, besides being judgmental, as we saw from the Google search, the other thing that, that oftentimes people think of as they think about us as a church is that we're hypocritical. And we can, we, that may not be true. It may be true. But we know this, perception becomes reality for people. And how do you break free from that? We overcompensate. We work to make sure it's not true in as much as it depends on us and as much as we can control. And so there's this idea of a concern for the outside world that Paul is saying, but the way you can be most concerned is by starting from within. In other words, what he's saying is to be concerned for the world around you, it's, it's none of your business to judge the world around you, those outside the church. But what we have done, what we tend to do, is we judge the outsiders and we ignore our brothers inside. And Paul is saying, maybe you shouldn't spend as much time holding up signs, picketing at places that are outside the church that have nothing to do with the family of God. And maybe you should go over to your brother's house and hold up a sign there and tell him he needs to go back with his wife and tell them you need to stop being hurtful with your words. You need to repent of your idolatry. You need to do this. You need to do that. And holding a sign inside the church, because when we do that, then we're stepping into what God has called us to do. After we've examined our own heart, after we've examined our own life, 
doing it with gentleness, doing it for people who are unrepentant. But Paul's saying we can leave the outsiders. Leave that to God. But go after your brother. And as I invite the band, I want you to invite you just to, to think about it like this. Imagine with me if the church, the Big C Church, truly became a hospital for sinners. At a hospital, you can come as you are. But you sure do hope you're leaving different. Imagine if the church was that place, and, and here's what I know to be true. Sometimes that would require some of us to be ambulance drivers. We get in that ambulance, and we are flying around, and we are looking for our brothers and our sisters, and we are throwing them in the back of the ambulance because we love them desperately, and we see the hurt, we see the brokenness, we see the pain, and we love them enough to not let them stay in that place, and we're doing whatever it takes to get them to the hospital. And sometimes that's what God's calling us to do. But sometimes God is calling us to hop on the gurney, to get in the back of the ambulance, to allow Scripture to speak to our heart and speak to our life. But what if that was what was true of our church? Imagine the impact that that would have. It would be massive. And what if the greatest way for us to be sharpened the greatest way for us to avoid the leaven, the, the cancer in our life, was to be fully known and be fully loved. To be transparent. To jump into a relationship, a community with someone, and to be real, to be vulnerable, to be loved as we are, to be challenged. You know, I think, I think the thing that keeps so many of us from doing that is this idea of what if what will other people think about me? What will they think if I'm real? What will they think if I'm authentic about my struggles? Can I tell you something? They're not worried about that. They're thinking the same thing you are. What, what if someone else thinks this about me? What are other people thinking about me? We're all thinking, what do other people think about us? And we're not actually thinking about other people. That's the irony of it all. But we have to be willing to be transparent. We have to be willing to be authentic. You know, the, way, the best way to avoid someone calling out the wrong in our life, it's not to avoid relationships. It's not to avoid intimacy because people will still find wrong in our life. The greatest way is to examine our own heart, is to know God's word and use it as a mirror that we hold up to our life, that we read things through. That's the greatest way. And so today, Church, where is the leaven in your life? Where is the, the cancer in your life, the thing that you hope nobody finds out about, the thing that's buried in your browser history, the thing that's deep in a text thread, the thing that's hidden in your bank accounts, the thing that if it, if it is left unchecked, it's going to destroy your life and eventually destroy the life of those around you as well. In a minute as we sing, as they lead us, I wanna just invite you to say, God, what is it? Search me, oh God. Try my heart, know my thoughts. What is that thing? We all have it. For some of us though, perhaps, 
we feel like we're trapped in sin and we can never break free. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we do, we are just constantly trapped and we can't do more. And it just seems like we're, we're on this treadmill and, and we can't ever receive and accept God's approval and God's goodness in our life. And I want to just offer this up to you that if you feel like you're trapped in sin and you're never experiencing victory of sin in your life, could it be that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus? Could it be that you are only trying to accomplish it on your own good and your own strength and your own back? Think about it this way. When I was in high school, I was good friends with my gym teacher's son and we would play golf together. And I'm, I'm terrible at golf. It doesn't matter how much I play, I'm terrible at golf. So my gym teacher, he gave me this nickname, Do-Over. And so he would call me Do-Over because I would hit a shot, it'd be terrible. I'd hit another shot and it would be worse than the first one. And I would just say Do-Over and not just on the drive, but on, on like anywhere along the hole. And in my mind, I thought if I have a Do-Over, it'll be better the next time. And that's what we think in life. Well, do over. Well, do over. But yet we keep hitting it to the right. We keep hitting it to the left. We keep hitting it off houses, whatever. What Jesus is offering to you, my friend, he's coming and he's saying, hand me the club. You got to hand it to me. Hand me the ball. And he hits it straight down the fairway. And you walk to the next shot. Hand me the club. And he's hitting the perfect shot every single time. The shot that I could never hit, that you could never hit. Jesus is saying, that's what I'm offering to you. That's what I'm inviting you to receive. And that's what Jesus is offering to you today. If you've never given your heart and life to him, the ultimate do-over. And he wants to wipe the slate clean and he wants to begin with you. Would you close your eyes? Would you bow your heads? If you need Jesus to come in and make your life new, to forgive you of your sin, your brokenness, the sin that it has you on a path to hell, the sin that has you entrapped in, in, in addiction and habits, the sin that is causing you shame, and you've never given your life to Jesus, I invite you to pray this simple prayer with me. The prayer itself is not magical, but if you believe these words, it will save your soul from death, from punishment. Pray this prayer in the quietness of your heart. God, I am a sinner. God, I need your forgiveness. God, I desire a relationship with you. Come into my life. And I invite you to be Lord of everything. Help me to walk in obedience to you. Amen.